world around us is an amazing place filled with beauty and with science. But let's face it, sometimes the science can be so confusing that it takes a PhD to understand it. Well, you're in luck. I just happen to have a PhD. Come and take a seat. Perhaps I can explain the world around us in a way we all can understand. Welcome to Conversations in Science. I'm Dr. Judy L. Moore. Call me Doc. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of Conversations in Science. I am Dr. Judy L. Moore, and as my intro says, I do actually have a PhD. For those of you who are new to the show, the way it works is that, well, I talk about some science, and my producer, Jesse Sanders. What's Jess, up, where Doc? Are you? <laughs> Hi, Jess. Right, so. Basically, what happens is that Jess makes sure that I don't get too technical, because sometimes I do. But Jess, I have something to say. Oh, what's the big news? Oh, there's no big news. I just wanted to say, Happy New Year! Wait a minute. It's June. It's not Jewish New Year. Is it New Year's on Mars? Uh, it might be. I don't know about that one. But in New Zealand, the country where I live, it happens to be the Māori New Year, also known as Matariki. Okay, wait a minute. Who are the Māori? Okay, the Māori in New Zealand are actually the indigenous people. Well, might as well be the indigenous people anyway. And basically, they were here before the British settlers that came to New Zealand. And one of the things that they celebrate is the rising of the cluster of Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters. If I was to go outside just before dawn and look into the eastern skies, assuming, of course, it's not clouded over, because most of the time in June it happens to be clouded over, but we won't go there – but if I was to look into the eastern skies just before dawn, I would see the, con- the uh, cluster of Pleiades rise above the horizon. And that was an indicator to the Māori that the year has gone by. Because it only happens at the beginning of June. Okay, I got a question, Doc. I didn't want to interrupt you because fascinating information. What are the seven sisters? Is, are there particular, do the individual sisters have names? I mean... <laughs> the individual sisters do have names, but I don't actually know what they are off the top of my head. But Pleiades, as it was, also, as it was called by the Greeks, but in, of course in New Zealand they call it Matariki, hence the name of the Māori New Year, Matariki. But what they are is actually galaxies different galaxies that are sort of just popping up above the horizon. They look like really, really bright stars, but they're not. They're actually galaxies. Okay. Really cool, isn't it? Yeah. So it's seven, the seven sisters are actually seven galaxies. Yeah, they are. And that's what makes one of the things about June so exciting for New Zealand. If you're an astronomer in New Zealand, it's a perfect opportunity in the year to actually get out and show astronomy to the public. Perfect excuse. And there's another reason why it's a perfect excuse for us astronomers to have fun with astronomy in public. In New Zealand, we're in the middle of winter, or at least we are definitely getting very cold anyway. 
And so our nights are getting very, very long. Now, I live in Christchurch, which is quite far south. And where I am at the moment, it is dark, as in the sun is down at quarter to six at night. Okay. Okay, wow. Uh, That's early, Doc. It is very early. And from the perspective of showing children about astronomy, that's actually a good thing. As we get closer and closer to the solstice, which is later in this month, so that's the longest day in the year in the Northern Hemisphere or the shortest day in the year within the Southern Hemisphere or longest night, in Christchurch at latitudes that we're talking about within Christchurch, we are, can expect the sun to be down at about 5.30 at night, quite happily. Oh, wow. Now, question. Are, can we see the Seven Sisters in the Northern Hemisphere? Yes, you can. Exactly where they are within the time scale of how things move, I can't tell you where they would be at right now because I'd have to look it up in the star chart. But yes, you can see the Seven Sisters in the Northern Hemisphere as well. There are actually equatorial star. It's an equatorial cluster, meaning no matter where you are in the world, you should be able to see it. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. It's probably why the Greeks actually had their stories and their own myths about the Seven Sisters. Because, let's face it, Greece, Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) So it is an interesting cluster, but from the point of view of talking about astronomy to kids, later in this month, I've actually been invited to go and talk to um, some Cub Scouts and some older Scouts about astronomy and various different aspects of stargazing and how the stars move, all because it's Matariki. It's one of the things that happens every year in June, science outreach. It's great. And it's one of the things that I just love about this time of the year. So I thought today's show, we would go over some of the strategies that I do in showing children and, of course, the general public, various different things that happen within our solar system so to help them understand and, of course, have fun while we're doing it. All right. So how do you teach little kids about the stars? Okay. So one of the things that's interesting that, of course, we all want to do is we all love looking through telescopes. Yep. Yeah, that can be a lot of fun. I've even done it once or twice, but I don't own a telescope, Doc. Yeah, well, I own a 50 mil refractor, so my telescope is about two inches in diameter. The lenses are actually quite small. They're only two inches. Um, But that's okay because you can see a lot with a two-inch refractor. And my telescope, one of the things that I'll do come mid-June when I go and talk to the Cub Scouts is I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to point it at the moon, assuming it's a nice, clear sky. Because... Come mid-June, when I go and talk to the Cub Scouts, it's not quite full moon, but it's definitely not new moon, which makes it perfect viewing for looking at this moon. When you're looking at the moon, one of the things that you want to be able to see is the craters, yes? Yeah, the craters are really fascinating to look at. And that's yeah, what they gives, are fantastic. And that's what gives 
the rise to the myth that the moon is made of cheese. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly where that comes from. Well, when you're looking at the moon, you don't want to look at the moon at the full moon because what happens is that all of the surface is so bright that that light is flooding your eye and you actually can't see any contrast. So you actually don't see the craters all that well. What you want is you want a partial moon. Somewhere in the partial phase, anywhere between the last quarter, first quarter, right through, it doesn't matter how far. As long as there's a sliver of dark as well as a sliver of light along the edge where it transitions between the light and the dark surfaces, you'll actually see the craters. It's the contrast in light that creates the effect that you need to be able to see them clearly. Makes sense, doesn't it? In a way, it makes sense. In a way, it's kind of like, wait a minute. Okay, so what's why is it wait a minute? What's confusing about it? I mean, I would think the more light, the better. But then I understand what you're saying about the contrast. But so it does seem reasonable that you would want to do it on a full moon. I assume you checked your calendar when you booked your dates with the scouts. Oh yes, definitely. I've definitely checked my calendars. <laughs> but that's okay. We're, we're, we're all sorted. If you're wanting to look at things like the, the stripes that are on Jupiter or Saturn's rings, you can do that in a telescope that's about, about eight inches in diameter. Maybe even four inches. You can possibly get away with one that's about four inches as well. And that's still not, I mean, that's probably bigger telescope than what most people have because they're quite expensive. I mean, I think one that's about the 200 mil refractor, so that is getting up to 200 mil. That's getting up to about an eight eight inches. They're close to $2,000. They're not cheap things. Okay, so they're not the... They're not the ones you'd pick up at a Walmart. No. The ones that you pick up at the Walmart are probably in the order of about two inches in diameter. But they're perfect viewing for looking at the ones that are two inches in diameter are perfect to see the moons of Jupiter. If I go back to uh, looking at what Galileo used, and the four biggest moons of Jupiter are what we call the Galilean moons. And Galileo only had a two-inch diameter telescope. That's all he had. And, of course, back then, he had to really polish the glass to make it work. And we have much better technology for making lenses than what he had back then. And he was still able to trace the four biggest moons of Jupiter. Hence the reason why they're called Galilean moons. So if he can do that... We can do that as well. And it is pretty cool to actually be able to see the moons of Jupiter orbiting around it. But you don't actually see in the, the two-inch refractor, you can't see the stripes on the, on Jupiter or the giant spot. But you can in a slightly bigger telescope. Cool. It's pretty cool to get out there. And I've done that. I've, I've managed to get my hands on a, a 200 mil refractor and I took it out for some scouts and they had so much fun they're like oh my god it really does have stripes and like, yeah it does and it's it's not just a trick of light it really does have stripes and it's the same with the rings of Saturn's 
when kids see these things through telescopes, they suddenly realize that it's not just, you know, digital tricks. They really do exist. It really does have things like that. So it's pretty awesome to get out there and do it. I'll bet their faces Some of the just other things, light up when they see it for the first time. Oh, yeah, especially with the craters of the moon. They are just like, oh, wow. But some of the other things that I also talk to them about is things like the eclipses. You know how we have the solar eclipse and the lunar eclipse. There's a big eclipse trying, here in the U.S. in August, I think. Yeah, and it's a solar eclipse, I, if I remember rightly. That's and it's up. a full one. Oh, oh, I so would love to see a full solar eclipse. I really, really, really would. But trying to explain the concept of a full solar eclipse to children can sometimes get a little bit crazy. So what I do is I tend to get three kids to stand up from the group, one to pretend to be the sun, the other one to pretend to be the earth. So they have to, of course, they have to spin around slowly and then orbit around the sun, you know, do the the day spin and then go around the sun once every year. Why not? And then, of course, I have the third child that pretends to be the moon. And they have to orbit around the Earth while facing the Earth. They're not allowed to turn around because, of course, we always see the same face of the moon all the time. It's never changed. doesn't matter where it is in the sky. We always see the same face of the moon. So, of course, you have to convince the children to do that. And it's so funny to watch them while they're spinning around and getting all dizzy. But, of course... When I get them into certain configurations, I will stop them. And one of those configurations is where I have the sun, the moon, and the earth all lined up. And what I'll do is I'll ask the child who's pretending to be the earth if he can see the sun, or she, as the case might be. And, of course, they can't because the moon's in the way. And that's a lunar, that's a solar eclipse. The moon is in the way of the sun. It just so happens that even though the sun is so incredibly big, the size of the moon and the distance of the moon from the earth means that the angles and everything is such that from our perception, the moon is the same size as the sun. It's not, but it's just because of distances and angles and and all of those sorts of things. But then trying to explain a lunar eclipse is a little bit more complicated because we don't always have a lunar eclipse. But for them to understand how it happens is that we need to move the sun, the earth, and the moon in that order. And then I ask the moon if they can see the sun. And of course the answer is no because the earth is in the way. But what makes it confusing is that that configuration of sun, earth, and moon is also the same configuration that's necessary for a full moon. Okay, now that that would, I can see where that would get confusing, because you've already kind of lost me on all the configurations. Wow, it's a lot to keep in your head, Doc. It is. It is a lot to keep in your head. Okay, so... Basically, what's happening with the lunar eclipse is we have the full moon. It's always facing us, right? So when we have the sun, the earth, and then the moon 
we see the full surface of the moon reflecting the sun's surface, okay? But the moon does not orbit the earth in exactly the same plane or exactly the same angles that the earth is orbiting the sun. Okay, so it's another one of those angles things. It is another one of those angles things. And then, ev- but every so often, the moon crosses the same plane. And as a consequence, the earth is blocking the light coming from the sun, which is why the moon goes red for a while and then it goes completely dark and then it goes red again and then comes out and it comes out of the lunar eclipse. So the lunar eclipse basically is when the red, when the moon goes red. Okay. Now is the, is the red moon called anything special? Um, it, well, sometimes it can be called the blood moon, uh, especially the moon that happens at around about August and September. Um, and sometimes heading into October, I, I think I've actually, I have actually seen one blood moon happen around about Halloween time, um, several, many, many, many years ago. It doesn't happen all the time coinciding like that. But normally, if we are going to get a total lunar eclipse, it is normally somewhere in that time frame between August and October, if we do get one. Okay. It's pretty, and it's, you can calculate everything. It's quite complex on how they calculate how everything moves, but that's the way it works. But to explain it to kids what's going on, one of the ways we also do this is I also get out a torch. So the sun pretends to be the torch and they shine the light. And that helps them understand how the full moon and the new moon cycle works. But by having the earth sort of dip a little bit, they can see how the eclipses are work a little bit better and how they move. All right. Good way so- to explain it. Yeah, now, crazy question, Doc. Do the kids ever get so dizzy from spinning around that they all fall down, you know, ring around the road oh, and yeah. all fall down? Oh, yeah, and and it is so funny, especially when you've got a bunch of um, what we call Kia, um, uh, Kia Scouts. So I, supp- I think that they're the equivalent of the Beaver Scouts in the States. It's the six-year-olds, the really, really young ones. And when you get them running around each other, oh, it's hilarious. I just, I can't stop laughing. And the leaders are normally just cracking up because they are just a bunch of, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. They're, it really is a circus to watch. And the funny thing about it is that a group of Kias is called a circus. So, <laughs> so yeah, it is a circus. And it's just so funny. I need to watch them, but yes. They, and you've they got at it. least three rings going because everybody's running around in their own circles. Exactly. And it's just, so it tires the kids out, which is really good. They start to understand that it's not as simple things about things moving because things are rotating and they're doing all these things. And they start to understand that the universe or our solar system is a lot more complex than just Let's put things orbiting around the sun. 
It's a lot more complex than what they think. One of the other things I'll explain to them is why we have the equinox and what the equinoxes are, because the equinoxes are when we have equal day and equal night, so same amount of hours of day and night. All right. And then we have the solstices, where we have the longest day or the shortest day, depending on whether you're northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere. And I'll explain why we get these twice a year. And the way you do that is you have them have their arms up on an angle because the earth is on an angle. We're tilted. We're not straight up and down with respect to the sun. We're on a slight angle. And so you have them move around the sun, but keep their arms at the same angle. So they're always pointing their hand towards the door or something like that. They're never moving their hand away from that door. And as a consequence, they see that one one hand gets further away or closer to the sun accordingly, which is the cause of seasons. And they also see that one side, you know, the upper hand or the lower hand is closer to the sun, depending on where they are, and you suddenly have all day. Or all night. That's... Depending. I'm sorry, but all day? I've actually been way up above the Arctic Circle where like 1030 at night was like dusk. It was like really weird. Talk about throwing my body clock off. Yeah, the human body actually does need day and night. But if you actually go to the poles, you can get certain times of the year where it's 24-7 sunlight or 24-7 dark. So black on certain times, if, it, if it's 24-7 sunlight, that's for sure. Blackout curtain, blackout curtain. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why things like the Antarctica, when they go down to Antarctica, they talk about the Antarctica winter, and it gets so cold down there, and but it's dark 100% of the time from the course of June. I it, I mean, you heard me talk about right at the beginning of this episode how it's dark before 6 o'clock at night in Christchurch. But can you imagine what it would be like down in Antarctica? It's dark 100%. Now, they don't actually have any daylight at all. And if they do, they only have a very, very small window of daylight that they might as well not have daylight at all. Wow. I wouldn't. I'm sorry, Antarctica just sounds a little too dark for me, Doc. I like the light. <laughs> I actually would love to go down to Antarctica at least once. That would be so awesome. But I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> but it would be so cool for the astronomy side of things to have 24-7 dark. Because you don't have to worry about the sunlight getting you in your way. Yeah. It'd be awesome. It'd be great stargazing. It really would. It would be really cool for stargazing. So, but is, you would only be able to see a small section of the sky. Is there an observatory down there? Um. Yes, there is actually. It's on Plateau C, I think. If I think wow. I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Yeah. 
Sounds fascinating. So, what else besides getting them all dizzy do you do to teach kids? Okay, for the older scouts, and, and one of the things I will do is I'll actually take them out and I'll talk about the Milky Way. You know how when you sometimes go out at night and you'll see what looks like this river of stars that's going across the sky? Right. Yeah, that is the Milky Way. That's our galaxy. That is actually all of those stars and all of those bits and pieces are that that haze is actually stars from within our own galaxy that we're looking at. And the reason why it is just in that area is because our galaxy is a disk. If we are looking outside of that river, we're going to see outside of our galaxy. So all the stars that are not in that river area are actually other things that are outside of our galaxy and and other bits and pieces. But one of the things that I will show them is that if you look towards um, the tail of Scorpius, which is one of the constellations, there's a section. You follow the river of stars, and you'll see the section where it bulges just a little bit. It bulges. And then there's, but in that middle of that bulge, there's like nothing. It, it looks, it looks like there's like an empty, slight empty sky to it. Okay. That's the center of our galaxy, the very center. And in the center of our galaxy, it's a black hole, which is why there's nothing there in the middle. Okay. And so, so- I'll point out to them. How much yes. does, does a black hole really pull stuff in and suck it out of space? It, yes, it does, which is why we're spiraling. I mean, our galaxy is what we call a spiral galaxy. So we are actually moving around the black hole. But it's not going to suck in at such a rate that we are going to be sucked into the black hole. Because basically what happens, if you think about things, if you are spinning yourself around, so you say you've got, I don't know, say you've got a ball tied to the end of a string and you're spinning it around your head, it wants to go outwards. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay. It's always, the ball's always pulling and that's how it stays up because it defies gravity by pull it, by you spinning it and it it's centrifugal force, right? Exactly. It's a centrifugal force. And that's exactly what's going on within our galaxy as well. So we're spinning around. So everything on the outer edges wants to move outward. But yet we have this black hole that's pulling everything inward. And hence, we're not really shifting with respect of our distances from the center of the galaxy. Does that make sense? Yes. So we're not going to get sucked up into the black hole. So anyone who's thinking that, you don't need to worry. You're really not. Centrifugal force is holding us out there. We're okay. We're going to stay okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but some of the other things I will talk to the scouts about is I'll point out um, the magic Atlantic clouds. In New Zealand, you can see... It looks like on a clear night, you've got the, the Milky Way going across the sky. And then a bit off um, of the Milky Way, you'll have what looks like two clouds. One's a large cloud and one's a small cloud, but they're not actually clouds at all. They're actually galaxies. And you can see them 
really clearly in New Zealand. So I will point out the Magellanic Clouds. Um, I will also point out the constellations, and I'll point out making sure that they can all identify the Southern Cross. And if I was in the Northern Hemisphere, I would make sure that kids can identify the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, and, of course, the North Star, well, you know, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and next, Polaris. Next time you come to the Northern Hemisphere, you're going to have to try and teach your producer how to find these things? <laughs> yes, I am. Because if you can find Polaris, you can find North. You know which way is North, because Polaris is not that far off of the Northern Celestial Pole. So anywhere you go... If you are heading towards Polaris, you're going to be heading towards north. But, of course, I'm so far south that I can't see Polaris. <laughs> so I have to use other means. And so I teach the scouts how to find south using the Southern Cross and using um, Alpha and Beta Centauri, which are the two brightest stars in Centaur, in the constellation of Centaurus or the Centaur. So I will um, point those out. But I'll also show them how they can find Orion. Of course, you can see Orion in the Northern Hemisphere, too. Right. Now, what's the other name for Orion? Well, with Orion, it's basically an equatorial star or an equatorial constellation. And one of the things that's nice about equatorial constellations is that it reminds you that we are all under the same sky. So if you are traveling, and I don't know if, if many um, people travel overseas from the States, probably not as much, but in New Zealand it's a big thing. When you hit a certain age, you do what we call the big OE, overseas experience. And a lot of, a lot of our youth actually go to England for a while, and they feel a little bit homesick. But when they can see constellations that they could recognize from New Zealand as well. They suddenly go, I, I'm not far away from home. You know, it's not that far away. And, and that's one of the reasons why I do it, because it gives them that way of just connecting and saying, oh, I know where that is. I know where home is. I know which way is home. And, and that's the biggest thing about it. Okay, I was going to say, wasn't there a song about looking up at the same bright stars? I think it was. Yeah, it was from, I think it was from American Tale. It was Two Little Mice, if I remember rightly. Exactly. I'm not even going to try and sing Doc Don't Go There. You know I can't carry a tuna bucket. A tuna, maybe, but a tune? We ain't going there. I I would, but I'm not going to go there at the moment. (laughs) So, I'm sitting here trying to think, how does that song even start? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so there's so. basically some of those, so there's some of the concepts that I, I cover with the scouts are various different things. And I'll show them how to use what we call a planisphere so they can actually navigate the skies using different times of the year. I'll show them how to read star charts. But, of course, you can't do that with younger children. How to read the star chart can be quite confusing to a younger child, but you can still show them where, you know, how to find the Southern Cross and find it without fail. My own children, and they're not really into astronomy, much to my dismay, but they know how to find Southern Cross. 
I make sure that they knew how to find Southern Cross. Well, that's good. That's good because the Southern Cross is your equivalent to our North Star, so they can navigate. Because if you can find North or South, you can figure out the rest. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. So that's why I made sure that they knew. Right. That's cool. So what else do you do? Okay, some of the other things that I do, I'm just sitting here trying to think, what am I going to be running through with these scouts? <laughs> um, I do take them through the planisphere. I show them the reasons why we have the different seasons and bits and pieces. I will occasionally talk about the different planets and <laughs> how poor Pluto is no longer a planet. <laughs> Yeah. But we've discovered that one before. That was on and another I'll... episode, Doc. <laughs> but I'll, and I'll also talk about um, some of the techniques. Um, with the older scouts, I'll talk about some of the techniques that they use to find planets, if there's time, and some of the techniques that they will use for validating um, some of the research. I talk about sometimes uh, the Goldilocks zone. Goldilocks zone, of course, you know, it's not too hot, not too cold, just right. It's the Goldilocks zone. And within, when you're talking about solar systems, if a planet is within the Goldilocks zone, it's likely to have liquid water. Okay, and so liquid it's water is not important too hot, not life. too cold, just right. That's why it's called the Goldilocks zone. That's exactly it. Not too hot. Not too cold. That's cool. If you have liquid water, you can have life. All or right. at least life as we know it. So, Doc, is there anything you want to bring up that we didn't cover other than going ring around the rosy? We all fall down with littlies <laughs> and star charts with bigger kids and northern stars and southern crosses. No, unless you have any questions, Jess, there's basically there are so many different ways to introduce astronomy to kids. But some of the most simplest things and just having them run around each other like a like fools is actually the most fun and one of the things that's great about astronomy in general is that it captures imagination and it makes science fun because they they can imagine what life is like there's no hard and fast rules because we don't 100 percent know everything that's out there and that's what makes astronomy so much fun well i can definitely tell you love your stars doc <laughs> thank you jess all right will you take care and I guess we're about out of time. We are. Okay. See you next time, Jess. Well, that brings us to an end of another Conversations in Science. If you have any questions about science and about some of the world around us, feel free to drop me a line. I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Judy L. Moore. Or you can look me up on Facebook, Judy L. Moore. Or you can drop me a line on my personal website, judyelmore.com. I think you're seeing the pattern here. Then, of course, if you are interested in some of the other projects I do, which is the writing and editing, feel free to check me out on blackwolfeditorial.com. But then, of course, don't forget, if you are wanting more information about the science, you can also contact us at the station with the email of science at klrnradio.com. Then, of course, there's my cohort that keeps going through and popping up. You mean me, Doc? Well, for anybody who wants to track me down, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse's POV. And you can also drop me a line at the station at Jesse's POV at KLRNRadio.com. Bye, guys. Bye.